Psalm 98, a psalm. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained him the victory. The Lord has made known his salvation, his righteousness he has revealed in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his mercy and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth in song, rejoice and sing praises. Sing to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of a psalm, with trumpets and the sound of a horn. Shout joyfully before the Lord, the King. Let the sea roar in all its fullness, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills be joyful together before the Lord. For he is coming to judge the earth with righteousness. He shall judge the world and the peoples with equity. Okay, we're going to be in Exodus. We've moved on to a new chapter today. Uh, Exodus 21, it's verses 1 through 11. I've entitled this sermon, The Law of the Hebrew Slave. It's uh, divided into two separate parts, and I cannot help but think that you will find them interesting. I'm going to read them to you and uh, then uh, see if you can figure out what's going on in these verses because it is marvelous. Um, verse uh, Chapter 21, verse 1. Now these are the judgments which you shall set before them. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go free and pay nothing. When he comes in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master has given him a wife and she has borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out by himself. But if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or to the doorpost and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl and he shall serve him forever. And if a man sells his daughter to a, be a female slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has betrothed her to himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has dealt deceitfully with her. And if he has betrothed her to his son, he shall deal with her according to the customary custom of the daughters. If he takes another wife, he shall not diminish her food her clothing, and her marriage rights. And if he does not do these three for her, then she shall go out free without paying money. On 28 October of 2003, I decided to put my commitment to Christ in writing. And so I would always have it there to refer to in the future. I had met the Lord two years earlier, and I thought it was important that I wanted to remember where I was at that point in my life. I even, after putting it in writing, I even uh, took it to the bank and I had my wife and a notary witness it. And it deals with the passage that we're looking at today. Here's what it says. This is the subject and all through my earlobe. To my master and redeemer, Jesus Christ, as your bond servant, it is my heartfelt desire to give my life entirely to you forever. In accordance with Exodus 21, 5 and 6, I declare the following. I love you as my master and I and my wife and children have committed our lives to you and do not want to go free from your presence. May my signature be low, be acceptable as an all through my ear and to you, the door of salvation. When you brought me out of spiritual Egypt and called me as yours, it was with the love of a caring and gracious master. Since that time, you have blessed me in every way. May my every breath and step be in line with your wishes. 
when I stray, rebuke me, and gent- rebuke me gently and have mercy on my family and me. May your Holy Spirit indwell me at all times and continue to fill me with each passing moment. I look forward to eternity with you, ever mindful of my position as your lowly and humble bond servant. And I carry a little copy of that in my wallet everywhere I go to remind myself once in a while when I get out of line with my master. Our text verse for today comes from Galatians chapter 2. It's verses 15 and 16. We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Exodus 21 is a part of the law, a law which is annulled in Christ. And so it would seem that my letter to the Lord would not be fitting. We're under the new covenant, not the old. Hello, Charlie. But what this picture, this Old Testament passage pictures is actually revealed in Christ Jesus in the New Testament. And so it applies. When I typed that letter, I was young in the faith and my doctrine was still undeveloped. But I realized even then that every word of the Bible points to Jesus. I never in my wildest dreams, not in my wildest imagination, would have thought that I would be preaching to you this passage at the superior word today. It seems unimaginable to me that this would be the case. But the greatness of God is revealed in the fact that he can use a guy as unworthy as me to preach his word. I mean, this is an amazingly great God. And I thank him for his grace and his tender mercies on my life and on that of my family, just as I requested those 13 long years ago. Well, let's get into this passage and see what got me all stirred up about it back in 2003. It's wonderful stuff from his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I have two thoughts for you today. The first is the Lord's freed man. It's verses one through six. Verse one, now these are the judgments which you shall set before them. Immediately following the giving of the Ten Commandments came the people's request to Moses to not let them hear the words of the Lord any longer lest they die. Directly following that, it says that Moses drew near to where God was in order to hear what the Lord would direct for his people. The first words from him closed chapter 20 with a further prohibition against idolatry and the instructions for the earthen altar. If you were here last week, you know how every bit of that pointed to Jesus Christ. Now chapter 21 begins a long list of instructions which will form the basis of regular conduct of the Israelite society. It will comprise most of this and the next two chapters after it. The words to begin the chapter and the instructions say, The word rendered here as judgments is mishpat. It indicates justice and it comes from the word shafat, meaning to govern or to judge. This word is widely translated as laws, regulations, rules, ordinances, decisions, legal decisions, rights, etc. Matthew Poole gives the full meaning of the word with a paraphrase. He says the rules which shall govern guide judicial decisions. These judicial decisions belong to both civil and criminal law, but they are also used to guide both moral and religious rulings as well. It has to be remembered from this point on that the government is established as a pure theocracy. 
In other governments, humans made the laws and humans decided whether they were violated and what type of punishment to inflict. This is not the case with Israel at this time. Instead, the laws are given by God and the punishments for violations are often mandated by him as well. However, he also allows the people to render judgments. When a case was not covered by his words, it could be brought directly to him as well. God is giving Israel general statutes to resolve particular cases under his theocratic rule. It is the first stage of Israelite society, and it will continue through the time of the judges in this particular fashion. It will fail due to the people's inability to keep the laws and be obedient to God. And the type of rule will change to a kingship under a human king. The statutes will continue to be in effect at that time, but... The time of the kings will be used to show that, once again, man fails to adhere to God's perfect standards of justice. Every step of the way, the time of the law is given to show us our need for something else. Only in the coming of Christ is that need fulfilled. Concerning these rules of governance, Adam Clark notes the following. He says, there is so much good sense, feeling, humanity, equity, and justice in the following laws that they cannot but be admired by every intelligent reader, and they are so very plain as to require very little comment. Despite his comment that these laws require very little comment, Clark commented on them quite a bit. I got to tell you what, such is the joy of reading Adam Clark's writings and knowing that his comments will often override his own comments and his joy to search out this precious word. And so let us begin our look into these equitable and just laws which the Lord will now utter. It is the same rules of governance that Moses is instructed to set lifnehem, or before their faces. Verse 2, if you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years. The term Hebrew is used only 34 times and 14 are in the book of Exodus. Not only that, but the last time it was used was in Exodus 10, verse 3, and that was 30 sermons ago. And now this is the last time that it's used in the book of Exodus, and it will not be used again for 762 sermons until Deuteronomy 15, verse 12. It is then of singular importance to understand that this word is being used for a specific reason. The name Hebrew means to cross over. The use and its meaning are tied directly to the reason for these instructions now given. The word for servant here is ebed. It means a servant or a slave. In the context of what is being relayed, it is referring more to a bondman or a slave than to a mere servant. There is no pay involved, and the means of one becoming indentured show that this is not mere servanthood. The Lord begins these rules of society with slavery, excuse me, probably for at least three reasons. The first is that this physical slavery pictures spiritual slavery. This has already been the case and it will continue to be seen in the Bible's pages. The second reason is that the Israelites had themselves been slaves in Egypt. Now, just a couple of months later, they were organized as a nation of free people, but some of whom may be brought again into slavery for one of various reasons. As this was expected, the new masters who were under the yoke of slavery would be instructed how to properly handle the issue themselves. The third reason is that the slave was more likely to be an offender within the household than a member of the household. And the slave was also more likely to be mistreated within the household than anyone else. 
in order to ensure that none would be mistreated and to ensure that the master's rights were also known, the issue is raised right at the beginning of the judicial laws. The idea of slavery is taken as an axiom here. It was an existing institution and it would continue under the entire time of the law. In the New Testament, there is nothing which prohibits the idea of slavery and it is noted in the New Testament without regards to whether it is right or wrong. It simply exists, and it is a part of the human experience. However, there is a truth which needs to be addressed concerning slavery before we actually consider this verse. No man is free. According to the words of Jesus, such as in John 8:34 and elsewhere in the words of the New Testament, we are either a slave of sin or we are a slave of Christ and to his righteousness. Paul goes into great detail in Romans chapter 6 on this very subject. Concerning Hebrew slaves, there are at least six different reasons why a Hebrew might become a slave. One, if someone became extremely poor, they could sell their freedom. This is found in Leviticus 25 verse 39. Two, a father might sell his child. An example is found in Nehemiah 5 verse 5. Three, a debtor who could not pay off his debts could become the slave of the creditor. An example of this is found in 2 Kings 4 verse 1. Four, if a thief didn't have enough to pay a fine which was levied upon him, he was to be sold to pay the fine. This is found in Exodus 22, verse 3. Five, a Hebrew might become a slave by being captured in war. And six, a Hebrew who was ransomed from a Gentile might then be sold by the one who ransomed him to another Hebrew. This is found in Leviticus 25, verses 47 through 55. The circumstances concerning the slave in each of these will vary based on how they became slaves and to whom they were enslaved. Verse 2 continues, And in the seventh he shall go out free and pay nothing. One of the greatest protections for the Hebrew slave, even if he was a slave because of a crime such as theft, was that they were to be released in the seventh year of their bondage. This means no more than six years of bondage and then release at the beginning of the seventh. There is a dispute as to what this seven-year period actually details, though. In Exodus 23, there is what is known as the Sabbath year. Let me read this to you. Six years you shall sow your land and gather in its produce, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, but what they leave, the beasts of the field may eat. In like manner you shall do with your vineyard and your olive grove. Six days you shall do your work, and on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may rest, and the son of your female servant and the stranger may be refreshed. Because of this Sabbath year, some scholars say that the Hebrew slaves were to be released in this year, whether they had been slaves for one year or for six years. In other words, a Hebrew could serve no more than six years at the outside. Other scholars disagree, saying that there is nothing specific to justify this interpretation. I would agree with this. However, there is also what is known as the year of Jubilee. This is found in Leviticus chapter 25. Okay? Any Hebrew slave with but one exception was to be released in that 50th year, the year of Jubilee, regardless of how many years he had been a slave, one or six. The word translated as free here is the word kofeshi. It is an adjective used for the first of just 17 times in the Old Testament. It comes from the verb kafash, which means to free. But not only was the slave to be set free, the Lord includes the word hinam. 
he was to pay nothing on the way out the door. Any further debts he had were to be wiped clean. But even more, provisions for the freed Hebrew slave are noted in Deuteronomy chapter 25. It says there, if your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you and serves you six years, then in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. Okay, out free with nothing. And when you send him away free from you, you shall not let him go away empty-handed. You shall supply him liberally from your flock, from your threshing floor, and from your wine press, from what the Lord from what the Lord your God has blessed you with, you shall give to him. The reason for this care of the Hebrew slaves is explicitly stated at the end of Leviticus chapter 25. For the children of Israel are servants to me. They are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. In viewing slavery as the consequences of sin, those words give us a lovely lesson to remember. And I'm speaking to us here in this church. The people of God have been redeemed from that life. And so we are then to interact with others as redeemed sinners rather than righteous saints, something that we learn on the mission work every Saturday morning. We don't treat ourselves as righteous saints down with those people. We're redeemed sinners and we empathize with them. This is why the master was to treat his fellow Hebrew slaves so generously. And this limitation on the length of bondage is certainly making a picture of man's bondage to the devil. The Bible shows that all people are born under the devil's power. Our sin is inherited, and John says that he who sins is of the devil. As all have sinned, then all are born under the devil's power and authority. But the good news is that Jesus came to correct this. In its entirety, 1 John 3 verse 8 says this, He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. When we call on Christ, we move from the bondage of the devil to being servants of a new master. And so the six years of slavery followed by the seventh year of freedom surely has a dual purpose. First, it pictures our time before coming to Christ and then the freedom that we have in him. This follows in picture from the six days of work followed by the seventh day of Sabbath rest. And secondly, it is a picture of the 6,000 years of man living in the world of sin from the time of the fall. This is followed by the final thousand years, which are, we would call the millennium. It is a time where Christ will rule over all of the nations. It is a time of liberty from the yoke of the devil and rest in Christ. Remember, during that thousand years, the devil is being bound up. So this is what this is picturing. Verse 3, if he comes in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he comes in married then his wife shall go out with him. Why would the Lord specify this? If this verse seems peculiar at first, it clears up with just a moment of thought. Should a man come in single, it would be obvious that he would leave single unless he got married while a slave. This is further explained in the next verse. However, if he were married when he came, the master could not say, hey, you still owe me from what you stole from me. I'm keeping your wife as my final payment. In other words, a wife was not considered as property which could be bought and sold by the slave owner. It is a protection of the family unit and of the woman who belonged with her man. It goes all the way back to the very, very, very beginning of the Bible where this is recorded. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The bonds of a free marriage for a Hebrew were to be considered binding, even above the bonds of slavery. If a woman wanted to follow her husband into his bondage, she was to be allowed to follow him again into his freedom. As a squiggle for your brain, 
the word for by himself here is gaff. It's used only four times in the entire Bible, and three of them are in verses three and four right here. The only other use of it is found in the book of Proverbs, and it is translated in a completely different way. Here's what it says from Proverbs 9, verse 3. She has sent out her maidens. She cries out from the highest places of the city. The word from the places is that word gaff. The word comes from a root, which means to arch. So you think of the highest place, right? From this comes the idea of the back, which we can arch our back. And from this comes the idea of the body of a person, which alone belongs to the person because it's his back. Thus, it means by himself or alone. In the case of Proverbs, the arches of the building would be the highest places where wisdom alone cries out. So you can see the etymological connection of the word between those two separate meanings. Verse 4, if his master has given him a wife and she has borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out by himself. This verse does seem contrary to our modern sensibilities, doesn't it? But it is perfectly logical and appropriate. When it was time for the slave to claim his freedom, it does not follow that another slave could also claim theirs. From this, we see that birth follows the belly. In Genesis 21, verse 10, Abraham was told to dismiss his maidservant, Hagar, and his son Ishmael went with her. The bond between the woman and the child was to take preeminence. As she was a slave and the property of the master, then he had a right to keep her and her children, just as the owner of the tree has a right to keep the fruit that the tree bears. If in his kindness to the Hebrew, he wanted to allow him to have her for a spell, it didn't change the right of ownership. Both she and any children she bore would belong to him. Further, this ownership implies that she is not a Hebrew. If she were, she would have to be released in her seventh year of bondage as well. Rather than being unfair, this shows the grace of the owner to allow the Hebrew slave to enjoy companionship during that time of bondage. Verse 5, but if the servant plainly says, I love my master and my wife and my children, I will not go out free. By a voluntary act of the will, the servant is given a choice about his status as a slave. Note that the love of the master is mentioned first. The giving of the wife came from the gracious hand of the master. The children who only temporarily belonged to the slave could only have come through the kindness of him as well. Therefore, it is a devotion to the master, first and foremost, to which the rest logically follows. Are you seeing why he did this letter back there in 2003? He loves his wife, given to him by his master. He loves his children, given to him from his wife who came from his master, and therefore he desires to not be freed from his master. If this is the case, then there are provisions to allow this. Verse 6, then his master shall bring him to the judges. The term here is El Ha Elohim, to the God. This is why some translations say that he is to be brought to God rather than to the judges. In what this pictures, the term to the God is certainly correct even if it is earthly judges who will witness the affirmation. Even the Greek Old Testament understood this and translates this as prostokriterion theo, or to the judgment of God. In the end, it is God who will see and act upon this precept and accept it. The wording is specific, and it is necessary for us to see what is being pictured. Verse 6 continues, He shall also bring him to the door or to the doorpost. El hadalet o el to the door, to the doorpost. The door is the access point of the home. 
It signifies the way in. The doorpost is what holds the door. The doorposts were first mentioned at the time of the Passover, when the blood of the lamb was sprinkled on them. That signified an open profession was made in the sufficiency of the death of the lamb to save. Verse 6 continues, And his master shall pierce his ear with an awl. The master is the one to pierce the servant, thus laying claim on the ownership of him and everything that he would possess from that point on. The word for pierce here is ratzah, and it's only used here in the Bible. The word for all is martseah. It is derived from Ratzah, and it's only used here and in Deuteronomy chapter 15, which says, Then you shall take an awl and thrust it through his ear to the door, and he shall be your servant forever. In that verse, the words ear and door are parallels. The two are tied together as if they have become one. What is all this picturing? Verse 6 continues, And he shall serve him forever. Ve'abado le'olam. The servanthood is a permanent action described by the word le'olam, or to forever. Rather than a long time, it will never be undone. The act is a declaration that the man belonged to the house as long as he lived. So what is this account picturing, if anything? The answer is that it pictures the work of Christ for each one of us. It is we who are being pictured here. We are the bondservants of Christ. Scholars agree that this boring through the ear is what is being referred to in Psalm 40, verse 6, even though a different word is used, which is translated as open. Psalm 40 is a messianic psalm which speaks of Christ's work. There in Psalm 40, we read these words, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you did not require. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. These words are again used to describe the work of the Lord in the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 10. However, there the author of Hebrews modifies the psalm just enough to show us that Christ's work is what is being pictured. In Hebrews 10 verse 5, it reads this way, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. Instead of my ears you have opened, it says a body you have prepared for me. The ear is being used in parallel with the entire body. Thus the piercing of the ear to the door is a picture of Christ's crucifixion and thus our being crucified with Christ, who is the door of salvation, just as he claims in John chapter 10, where he said, most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The slave willingly gave up his freedom and his rights in one economy and transferred them to another. When he was a free man of Israel, he was bound to the law of Moses. As Paul shows in Galatians, the law is bondage. It is what shows us our sin, and it is what condemns us. The law is not freedom. The law is bondage. Here's what Paul says. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise, which things are symbolic. For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, meaning the law, which is Hagar, 
for this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which is now and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. The very thing that we think is freedom is in fact only another type of bondage. But for the slave of his master, guess what? It is his master who is bound to the law and the slave is bound to his master under the law. It is a picture of Christ fulfilling the law on our behalf. He is the master. We are his slave and we are crucified with him. Paul could not be clearer in this. In Galatians 2, we read this. For I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. But there was always the chance that the master might have forced his slave to remain in bondage against his will, right? Just take him down there and put the thing through his ear and say, hey, he said he did it, right? Who could tell if no public affirmation of his intent was made known? This is why he had to be taken El Ha Elohim or to the God. The affirmation is one which is voluntarily made and openly witnessed. The slavery is not forced, but willingly accepted. This is an obvious picture of both the free will of man in his voluntary surrender to the Lord in the presence of the God. Nothing could be clearer. So much for the Reformed theologians that say that we do not have free will in salvation. Even the Old Testament, 1,500 years earlier, showed us that you must make a voluntary profession of faith. We who are in Christ are free from the law because he fulfilled it on our behalf. As Paul says, for he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freed man. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become the slaves of men. And this freedom we possess as the Lord's bondservant is, as this verse says, le olam. This one word used in connection with the marvelous verse is an explanation of our salvation. We actually need go no further to defend how long we are saved for or if we could ever lose our salvation. The picture given to us from 1,500 years before the coming of Jesus Christ tells us all that we need to know. People don't want to hear the term once saved, always saved. This is what the Bible teaches. We are his servants, le'olam, to forever. Hallelujah for that. Mm -hmm. If it was up to me, I wouldn't be saved 10 minutes from now. I was a slave to the law, which only pointed out my sin. I couldn't meet its expectations, though I tried so hard. But in my place, my Lord Jesus, the victory did win. Now my yoke is light and easy, not heavy and hard. And so with him, I desire ever to stay. As his slave, may I forever remain. May the joy of serving him begin right now, today. I give up my freedom to sin and receive heavenly gain. My master is tender and caring. To him, I will cleave all of eternity in his presence. I will stay who could say, I don't want this and so I will leave? Why, life under my master gets sweeter each day. Our second thought today is bondage to whom? It's verses 7 through 11. These five verses are as important and exciting to me as Genesis 38, the story of Judah and Tamar, my favorite possible Old Testament passage that I ever preached on. What was that showing us? All of redemptive history laid out. 
and a man sleeping with his daughter-in-law and not knowing that she's his daughter-in-law and her having a child through him. And all of redemptive history is pictured in that one wonderful passage. And we're having the same thing in the next five verses. It's marvelous. Verse seven, and if a man sells his daughter to be a slave, she shall not go out as the male servants do. Wow, huh? The first five verses on the female slave seem to offend the senses of our modern society and are definitely frowned upon by feminists who call them shocking, demeaning, etc. And yet, these verses actually provide more protection for the woman than the man. Both could be sold into slavery, but the woman enjoyed extra protections. Some translations say, as in the New King James Version, she shall not go free as male servants do. But the word isn't the same as with the man in verse 2. There it said, He shall go out free. Here it says, No, she shall go out as do the men servants. This isn't speaking of the man working six years and then being freed. Rather, it is speaking of her treatment during the six years. She has a right to be freed earlier if certain conditions aren't met. This is evident from Deuteronomy 15, which says this, If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you and serves you six years, then in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. So the woman could go out after six years just as the man, but she could go out earlier than the man if certain conditions weren't met. This is protecting the woman. It's not demeaning to her at all. So any slave who is sold may go free in the seventh year, but the woman's freedom may come earlier. And the reason for this becomes evident as we continue. Verse 8, if she does not please her master who has betrothed her to himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. The word translated here as betrothed shows the Elizabethan attitude of the translators. The word is ya'ad. And this is its first use in scripture. It means to agree or to designate. Some translations say espouse, while others say married. What it implies is that a sexual union took place. A clearer, explicit reference is found in verse 10. He has a right to her as his slave, just as he has a right to give his female slave to his male slave in verse 4. The body of the slave belongs to the master. However, after whatever time with her, he decides he's not keen on her, then he must allow her to be redeemed. It doesn't specify any particular reason for being displeased. Maybe she wouldn't cook him his favorite meal. Maybe she said she was excited about getting away from him at the end of the six years and it broke his poor heart. It doesn't matter. What matters are her protections. She could be redeemed earlier if this was the case. The first time being redeemed was mentioned in the Bible was in Exodus 13 at the time of the Passover. Now the concept is reintroduced into the Bible concerning this slave woman's rights. This alone shows the care that the Lord had for women. He designated that there must be a chance for her to be bought back. Verse 8 continues, He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has dealt deceitfully with her. As a Hebrew and as a woman that he has dealt deceitfully with, he could not sell her to one not of Israel. This word deceitfully is bagad. Again, a new word is introduced into the Bible here. The implication is that he is the offender and that he has acted in a treacherous manner towards this woman. He has broken faith with her, not the other way around. He must let a person of Israel redeem her 
or he must continue to care for her, or he must let her go without any further debt attributed to her. Were he to sell her to a foreign people, he would actually violate the theocratic law by stripping her of her rights under the law. Verse 9, And if he has betrothed her to his son, he shall deal with her according to the custom of daughters. If a man were to buy a female slave as a slave, intending for her to be given to his son, then that means that he intended her to be within the family as a daughter. As this is so, then she would be entitled to the customary bride price of a daughter. This is something entirely extra than the male slave would be entitled to. Again, it shows that the Lord has the minutest care for the weaker sex in mind. Along with this right, she was to be treated as a daughter of the house, with all of the same benefits of a blood-born daughter, food, clothing, and etc. Verse 10, if he takes another wife, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, and her marriage rights. The question is, who is this speaking of? The master of the house of verse 8? If so, then why wasn't this stated before verse 9? If it is speaking of the son in verse 9, then there has been a change in the subject without any indication of it. Because of this, and because it precedes verse 11, which says these three, which are speaking of her marital rights, this is speaking either of the master of the house or the son. Whichever takes her as a wife and then takes another wife, whether she is a slave or a legitimate wife, is still responsible to maintain her she'era, kesuta ve'onata, her food, clothing, and marriage rights. Each of these is a rather unusual word. The she'er, or food, is mentioned for the first time in the Bible. It means a relative, as in kinfolk. But in this case, it is food which is related to a relative. The kesuta, or the kesut, or clothing, is only used eight times in the Bible, and it means a covering. And the ona, or marriage rights, is used only here in the Bible. And it corresponds directly to Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where he says, Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. This refers specifically to conjugal rights. He cannot deny her this without violating the law of the Hebrew female slave. We finish our verses today with verse 11 in these words. And if he does not do these three for her, she shall then go out free without paying money. We conclude verse 11 with a question. Which three things is it referring to? Some scholars say it is the three things in verse 10, giving her food, clothing, and marriage rights. Others say that he must do one of the three things in verses 8, 9, and 10, meaning that he is to either marry himself, marry her to his son, or allow her to be redeemed according to the law. If he didn't do one of these three things, then he was obliged to let her go out freely without her or her family owing him anything further. Based on what these verses are picturing, the answer is the three things mentioned in verse 10, but as they relate to the other three. In other words, the assumption is made that the woman is taken as a female slave for the purpose of a relationship. What on earth is all of this here for? Like the previous verses, these are not just telling us a set of laws for individual cases which might arise in Israel. They are also showing us a spiritual picture of how the Lord has dealt and still deals with his people. Specifically, this is referring to the people of Israel collectively. They were purchased 
and they were taken in by the Lord, becoming his possession. That was at the Passover in Exodus 13. They became his possession. We talked about that word before, segula, his special people, his treasure. Unlike a male slave, the rights in this type of agreement are immediate and they are permanent. Thus, Israel is not to be dismissed without considering her rights. The Lord purchased them in order to be a husband to them. And yet, they were found to be unpleasing in his sight. This is testified to throughout the entire Old Testament. However, he has set the limitations by showing that he will remain faithful to them despite them not being pleasing to him. He cannot just arbitrarily reject them. Instead, he must allow them to be redeemed, and he cannot simply sell them to a foreign people. However, as they are his people, and as he is their redeemer, only he can redeem them once again. Until he does so, he must continue to provide for them. After this, the option is given that he would betroth them to his son. In doing so, he must deal with them according to the customs of a daughter. And in fact, he did do this. He promised them a new covenant with them. Jeremiah 31 verse 31 tells us this. This covenant was not made with the Gentile church. Be advised, when you see Jesus say, this is the new covenant, my blood, it was not made with the Gentile church. It was made with the people of Israel. This is how the Bible reads. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. Are you seeing how it's starting to fall into place? It was Israel who was displeasing in his sight. And yet he promised them a new covenant with them, a new marriage contract with them. As we know, it is with Jesus, the son of God, and it is testified to through the shedding of his blood. The agreement was made. And God has promised to care for Israel as is according to the custom of a daughter. Isaiah 52 speaks of the daughter's redemption. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for the uncircumcised and the unclean shall no longer come to you. Shake yourself from the dust. Arise, sit down, O Jerusalem. Loose yourself from the bonds of your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you have sold yourselves for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. Only he could redeem them and only he has redeemed them. And even more, he has offered them a new covenant through Christ, the son of God. But there is still another precept which is included here. It concerns the man taking another wife. Not only did the Lord take Israel, he has also taken a Gentile bride. This is the reason for including this provision in this verse. Despite having received the Gentiles because of Israel's unfaithfulness, he has levied upon himself the requirement to not diminish the rights of the first wife. It is the same wife, Israel, who has been unfaithful to the Lord, not the other way around, and yet he has remained ever faithful to them. They rejected him, and yet he redeemed them. He has offered to them every benefit and right that was promised to them. And now as we draw near to the end of the church age, I'm talking about the Gentile-led church age, the redeemed of Israel are seeing that he never forsook them. He has been there with them all along, waiting for them to return to him. The maidservant, the daughter of Zion, has been unfaithful and displeasing in his sight, but he has never been unfaithful to them. Instead, he has fulfilled every provision of his word, the she'er, the kesut, the onah, 
What he has instructed man to do is only a picture of what he himself has done and continues to do. This same faithful God who looks out for the rights of even the poorest of maidservants also looks out for the rights of those he has redeemed. He will never break his faithfulness with them and he will never let a word of his promises to them fail. Though these verses today speak of things which almost seem foreign to us, they are actually as relevant to us right now as they were when slavery was considered a normal institution of man. The reason is that we are all slaves to something. We are either slaves to sin or we are servants of God. If you have never called on Jesus Christ, then you are a slave to sin and the devil is your master. That's all that the Bible offers you. There is no other choice. His yoke is heavy and his burden will only lead to destruction. I'm talking about the devil. But Christ came to free us from that. If you have never called on him but would like to, let me tell you how you can right now. You can by calling out, Jesus, I want you to save me. That's what he asks you to do is to simply have faith that Jesus Christ is capable of saving you. You know, the Bible says that Jesus is our Savior. And we say, oh, I believe that. I can go down to the missions on Saturday and people that don't even know the Bible. I can ask them, why did Jesus come? Oh, he came to save us, right? Well, if he said that and then he says, well, I'm going to expect you to do this and I expect you to do this and I expect you to do this. How can you believe this and not believe that? It's the same book that tells us everything about Jesus. You can't pull out one line from this book and come up with anything other than a faulty gospel. You can't do it. He has given us his word and it has so many wonderful promises in there. He came out of the grave after dying on a cross for our sins. Do I believe that or not? If I do, then I want him to take away my sins through that act and give me the le olam, the two forever that he promised his Hebrew servants. That's all that he wants from us is to simply say, I trust you and I will follow you wherever you lead me. You're a great enough God to do that for me. And all of redemptive history, I mean, five verses have shown us everything that Israel has gone through for the past how many years? Five verses. Because he's trying to get us to wake up with very simple pictures of what he himself has limited himself to. I will not violate the word that I am asking you to not violate. What a great God. Jesus Christ came into the stream of humanity to save. Only he can do it because only he is the God-man. Call on Jesus Christ and he will put his human hand on your head and he'll put his infinite arm out to his heavenly father and he will bridge back to you reconciliation with him. Only through Christ. Only through Jesus Christ. Our closing verse today comes from Galatians 3. It's verses 7 through 9. Therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Do you wonder why the term Hebrew was brought in by God to today's verses? It's been 30 sermons and we've got a million more before we get to the next use of Hebrew, but you wonder why it was today? It's because it pictures those who have crossed over. Abraham was noted as the first Hebrew, the first to cross over. Now all who cross over are sons of Abraham by mere faith. What a great God. I believe, I receive. Thank you, Jesus. Next week is Exodus 21. It's verses 12 through 27. How to keep from a lot of heck 
It's called Keeping Violence in Check. That'll be your 58th Exodus sermon. And I'll tell you, as I say each week, that the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part the waters and he can lead you through it on dry ground. So follow him and trust him and he'll do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? I have a poem here based on the 11 verses. Uh, Two couples have never uh, done this. I've made a poem of every passage I've ever preached on and I have a poem of the book of Genesis, a poem of the book of Ruth and we're halfway through a poem of the book of uh, Exodus now. This is entitled Hebrew Slaves. If you follow along in the New King James Version, it's very, very close. Now these are the judgments which you have shall before them set. They are new judgments which I have not spoken yet. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh year he shall go out free and pay nothing. Nothing is considered as left in arrears. If he comes in by himself, he shall by himself go out. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. Let there be no doubt. If his master has given him a wife, and she has to him sons or daughters given birth, the wife and the children shall be her masters, and he shall go out by himself, a free man on the earth. But if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children too, I will not go out free, then this is what you shall do. Then his master shall him to the judges bring, and you will together do the following thing. He shall also bring him to the door, or to the doorpost, either will do. And his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. He will be a slave to you. And if, his, if a man sells his daughter, this I now instruct to you, to be a female slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has her to himself betrothed, then he shall let her be redeemed because she to him was loathed. He shall have no rights to sell her to a foreign people. This would not be right since he has dealt deceitfully with her and only increased to her misery and plight. If he has betrothed her to his son, he shall deal with her according to the custom of daughters. He shall treat her as if she were one. If he takes another wife, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, and her marriage rights. In doing such a thing to her, he would then be rude. If he does not do these three for her, then she shall go out free without paying money for sure. These are my judgments, and so shall they be. It's pretty wonderful to see God's plan of redemption revealed in such seemingly obscure places, but it is everywhere in each passage we mention, and his plan is realized in all redeemed faces. Are you one of the redeemed of the Lord? If so, give him praise and thanks. Let it flow from all of us. Let us forever hail God's incarnate word. Yes, forever let us hail Christ the Lord, our Jesus. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, what a great God you are to pack so much information into five seemingly obscure verses about a poor woman who was sold into slavery. And you've limited yourself to those verses to show that You can do what we often fail to do. How wonderful you are to send Jesus Christ to fulfill the law on our behalf and then allow us to be under him. He in place of the law and we under him. What a marvelous God. Everything that you do is wonderful. Lord, we do pray for Jim and Linda's son and the family that have lost their home. We would pray that you would give them comfort and help them to see your wisdom in allowing this to happen that their lives will be redirected more fully to you and that they won't put any trust in the things of this world, but rather to say, you know what, Lord? You are all sufficient. You are all gracious to us. Help that to be, and we certainly pray for Nancy up in Chicago who is 
facing real, real trouble. And each and every person associated with her and that family and the extended friends, wow, Lord, it's heartbreaking. It's just heartbreaking to think of what's going on in her life and so many other lives as well. Pray for safe travels for those heading back to their own homes here, whether it's across the state or back to Illinois or Paul and Elaine that are coming back to Florida this week or whoever else. Anybody that's not here because of sickness like uh, Roy and Mike or anybody else that didn't make it here for whatever reason that you would take care of them and help them to remember to check the uh, Prophecy Update and the Sermon Online for important information that will help them know you more fully. Lord, what a great passage. I got to say that again. I'm so thankful that you've allowed me to preach on these words, which I put into my own writing 13 years ago. What a great God. I can't believe it. Mom and dad are here and they know every fault I have. They certainly would say, yeah, he needs a, he needs a savior. And I got a great one. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you for everything you've done for us. Praise your holy name. We commit the uh, Lord's table to you now and uh, help us each to reflect on the goodness of Jesus Christ and what he did for us. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. We get the instruction for the Lord's Supper directly from the Bible. It's uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul builds on the words of Luke from his gospel. And uh, I do add in the blessing that uh, Jesus would have given and nothing else. So he says there, uh, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And he would have given thanks over it by saying, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam hamutzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it. And he said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, and he would have blessed us as well. He would have said, Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melecha Olam Borei Peri Hagafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ.
body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the body and blood of Jesus Christ, remembering his death until he comes again. May that be this year, maybe 2016, that you come for us and take us to that heavenly home. And if it's not to be, then we'll just keep on praising you through it as the world continues to spiral down, down and down. We'll continue to praise you through it all. You are worthy of it, no matter through life or death, through trouble or through good, good times, we will remember to praise you. Lord God, thank you for this wonderful word you've given us, your superior word. There's nothing like it. Help our eyes to be open to its secrets daily. Opening it, taking it, reading it, and applying it to our lives. Help us to keep things in context and never to manipulate or misuse your word for any other reason, for any reason but rather to hold to it and cherish it in context as you would have us to apply it. Oh, God, you're so good to us. We thank you. We exalt you. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.